Next week I had planned to do kind of a wrap-up with this on um, more of the consequences of what following any of these other gods rather than the Lord God, kind of where that leads us. Uh, but um, if I can find somebody that would like to teach next week, my grandson is graduating from preschool in Salida next Wednesday. <laughs> preschool, it's the big deal. It's not like it's high school or college. <laughs> Well, the school is in Salida, so so we're going to get, we're hopefully hoping to go over there for that, so if you're wanting to tell these people what you really think of them next week's your opportunity right here. <laughs> um, tonight, uh, we've got a video with this. The first time I taught this lesson, I did not show the video, um, and it's not, it, the the interview itself I felt like was, I guess they all point to the God of me, but it's more about uh, pornography, that kind of thing. But the, the comments that the author makes are, are worth listening to. And so, so therefore, we're going to watch this video, and uh, then we will uh, start with the lesson. So. There are gods at war within each of us. They battle for the throne of our hearts, and much is at stake. For whichever god wins the war, wins control over us, and ultimately determines our destiny. This is why the Bible has so much to say about idolatry. To us, the issue may seem somewhat irrelevant, but the truth is, behind every sin you struggle with, behind the discouragement you're dealing with, behind the lack of purpose and passion you're living with is a false God that is winning the war in your heart. And until that God is dethroned and the Lord God takes his rightful place, you will not have victory. I was reading an article that told about the three Christs of Ypsilanti. It was written by a psychologist named Milton Rokich, and he described his experience in treating three patients at a psychiatric hospital in Ypsilanti, Michigan, and all three patients suffered from delusions of grandeur. Specifically, these patients thought that they were God. They were convinced that they were the Messiah who had come to save the world, and Rokich couldn't seem to break through and help the patients accept the truth about their identity. And so he decided to put all three into the same group together, thinking that maybe being around others that thought of themselves as the Messiah might help reality set in. There were some interesting conversations that took place among the patients. Uh, for example, one of them would say, I am the Messiah, the Son of God. I was sent to save the earth. And Rokich would ask, how do you know that? And the patient would say, God told me. And then one of the other patients would jump in and say, I never told you any such thing. And it does seem a bit insane to think that people are walking around believing that they are really the Messiah, God in the flesh. But I wonder if there really is much difference between the three Christs of Ypsilanti and the rest of us. Because we have a tendency to think that the world revolves around us. 
that we are the center of the universe, that our happiness is what should be pursued, that our desires deserve to be satisfied, that our success is what's most important. As we've looked at the different gods at war within our lives, have you noticed something that they all have in common? What has become clear to me is that ultimately all these gods at war within me really represent one God, me. Truly, it's just the Lord God or it is the God of myself that I must choose between. Ultimately, that's the choice we make every day. Will I worship God or will I worship me? I was raised the son of a pastor in a small Pentecostal church. denomination was really legalistic. Um, God seemed to be a person who was trying to send me to hell all the time. Everything seemed to be wrong. I didn't want any part of it. I, especially as a teenager. It wasn't so bad when I was a kid, but as a teenager I really started rebelling. Uh, not wanting to be part of this bunch of hypocrites. My senior year of high school I met um, a woman who well, was the same age as me. We were both 17, and she had been raised differently. God was someone she had a relationship with. Um, he wasn't somebody that, that scared her. And for her sake, I tried to be a Christian, but I, I wasn't getting it. It wasn't real. She was still a virgin on our wedding night, and it wasn't because I didn't try to change that, because I tried pretty hard. And she lived her faith, though. She, she loved God more than she loved me. And, and that's part of why I liked her so much, is that purity. So I'm living this life as her husband, going to Tuesday morning Bible studies and prayer meetings with the men of the church. And in the meantime, we'd brought a computer into our house, and I discovered internet porn. first of the Ten Commandments make it clear. The Lord God will not share you with anything or anyone else. So when a false God begins to take his place, he will force you to choose. He wants the throne of your heart. He won't settle for a love seat where you try and make him share that space with money or love or work, food, sex, or anything else. In Scripture, God's consistent message to idolatrous people is simple. It's choose. Through Joshua, God says to his people, choose this day whom you will serve. Through his prophet Elijah, God speaks to his people on Mount Carmel and says, choose for yourself who is the one true God. When Jesus met the rich young ruler, the ruler wanted to follow Jesus, but Jesus had him choose between following money or following him he couldn't choose both. God is a jealous God. And when we try to share our hearts and affection, things may work out okay for a while, but the time is quickly coming when there will be a collision and a choice will have to be made. There are gods at war, and the Lord God won't settle for a truce. He loves you too much to share you. When my wife would be asleep or when she would be uh, at work, I would, I would be looking at porn. I'd sometimes come home on my lunch breaks and I'd be late getting back to work because I would just 
be consumed by it. I'd always been really entrepreneurial. I'd always been trying this or that to make money. And I started thinking that I could, I could really make a living in this. Um, I, I bet I could, I could produce this, and what better job to be paid to be around naked girls all the time. And the very first place that I emailed said, we buy from normal, everyday people. They have cameras, and they set them up, and they recruit models, and they send it to us, and we buy it. That's how simple it was. And so that's what I did. I started walking up to people, even at the mall or at strip clubs. I'd go to strip clubs. But at the beginning, it was like, you know, $1,000 for, for posing for photos for a few hours. The more that you explain to a college-age student why they shouldn't do something, the more they want to. And I would use that reverse psychology on them so that I could not only talk them into doing what I wanted them to do, but justify it to myself by saying I tried to talk them out of it. The first girl I recruited answered an ad that I stuck online. And um, as crazy as it sounds, she drove from Florida to California to shoot for me. After that first girl, I thought, well, that was easy. I made a lot of money. You know, the law of supply and demand says that all of us that are consuming it, we might not be picking up the camera, but we're providing the finances. You know, even the free sites make an enormous amount of money in advertising. And in the end, that's really what keeps it all going. And that's how I started, shooting porn part-time behind my wife's back. I did that for three years. I was always afraid that I'd be caught. It's not like she didn't know something was wrong. She just didn't know what. And I, it's not that I didn't love her. I just loved me a lot. When we choose ourselves, we do so making the assumption that we are choosing a path that leads to happiness, comfort, and satisfaction. But the truth is, the more life becomes about me, the more likely I am to struggle with depression I was reading this article in the Los Angeles Times that explained there's an epidemic among people born in the last 30 years when it comes to depression. That this generation is three to 10 times more likely to be depressed than their grandparents. The stated reason for so much depression, they said cultural occurrences that have exalted the individual. In other words, the more life is about me, the more depressed I become. The more I put myself on the throne of my own heart, the more elusive personal happiness and satisfaction is. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus said that those who follow him are to deny themselves. Deny means more than just saying no to yourself. It means you don't even consider yourself. But then Jesus makes this promise that doesn't seem to make much sense initially. But it's a great spiritual irony. Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. When we finally climb off the throne of our own hearts and humbly bow down to the one true God, we begin our way down a path which leads to life that is truly life. Probably the biggest thing that kept me in for so long was the hatred towards God because the money part was great, but watching the models was heartbreaking. 
I saw some girls become total basket cases. I mean, these are not broken people when they get involved in the business. Like we like to sometimes tell ourselves, I've heard people justify it by saying, oh, they're just broken people anyway. No, they're not, they're your daughters. I got more and more girls involved in this business. I would watch the lights go out in their eyes, and I'm not exaggerating that. You would see this bright, bubbly girl come in, get excited about the kind of money she was made, and maybe even find it exciting for a short period of time. But over the course of time, the lights turn off. There's no soul left. It would be hard to watch, but the hatred towards God is really the only thing that made that bearable because it felt so good to be doing something so wrong. I told myself that I was at least staying professional. I wasn't cheating on my wife in my head. If I ever did, I was gonna come clean with her. That, that first time cheating, I was like, I can't believe I did this when I cheated yet again. Uh, I kept the promise I made to myself to tell my wife. She was devastated. I didn't even get to the cheating part, and she was already devastated because I told her that I'd been producing porn behind her back. So after I came clean to my wife, I was laying on the floor of my office, sleeping there at night, and, and she gave me the option of going to counseling and, and speaking to pastors and, and getting right with God, and then she would let me come back into the house. But I, I, I chose not to do that. One of the reasons many people worship a false god instead of the one true god is that they really don't understand him. They think of God as a harsh dictator who delights in punishing his subjects, or as the great cosmic killjoy who passes down laws arbitrarily to make life miserable. Or they think of God as a distant deity who maybe got the engines of the universe up and running, but went off to another universe for a glass of tea and is largely indifferent to the pain and to the suffering of this world. But the Bible consistently describes God as a loving father. In fact, if you read through scripture, you'll find him referred to that way in the Old Testament about seven times. But in the New Testament, he is referred to as a father more than 150 times. It's because Jesus died for our sins. And when he is our savior, changes the way we relate to God. We are forgiven of our past. And the Bible would teach that no matter what you've done, no matter who you have become, because of Jesus, we can stand before God without blemish or defect. And this changes everything. God is not chasing you like a cop who wants to see you tried and convicted. There's no reason to run away. God is chasing you like a father. His arms are open wide and he wants nothing more than for you to run home. What's it gonna take? What's it gonna take for you to stop worshiping these false gods and to worship the one true God? Your loving and gracious Heavenly Father. Every year the adult industry has conventions all over the world. And the biggest one of the year is in Las Vegas. I walked through the doors of the convention and I see this really simple booth and it's got a black background 
with white letters, and it says xxxchurch.com, the number one Christian porn site. <laughs> I'm thinking, this is awesome. This is great. I bet these are people filming porn in church. And I was thinking, that's right up my alley. I would love to see what they're doing because I probably don't want to produce for them. But I get there, and they're actually youth pastors who have decided to become missionaries to the porn industry because they were tired of seeing what it was doing to their young people. I mean, the average age someone sees porn now is 11 years old. So in order to do something about it, they're like, let's go to the root of the problem. Their approach was so different. Like they weren't standing there trying to tell people that they're gonna go burn in hell. They were basically doing crazy things like girls who were paid by the porn companies to walk around and practically nothing handing out materials were having their makeup done by these triple X church people. And they'd sit them down and they'd tell them that you're beautiful, God loves you, and we have women in the bathrooms. So if you want to escape the men who are groping you here on the show floor and talk to someone, we're in there. And they had these Bibles, and on the back it says, does Jesus really love porn stars? And it says, yeah, he loves porn stars as much as he loves pastors, soccer moms, liars, thieves, and prostitutes. We're all the same to Jesus. We're just people who need him to save us from the mess we've made. They were just doing things different. What they're doing is they're believing that Jesus' love is enough to change a life. And these people were just loving. I would just like rip into the, these people and show them a lot of hatred and I'm trying to lash out in one last ditch effort to, to hate God. And they were really getting in my head. Every time I tried to test them to see what they were really made of, they would respond in love. I was like really struck by that and I would be like, these people are kind of cool. Over the course of four years, they broke the hate down. The Triple X Church people had taken away all this hatred that had been motivating me for so long. And that's how long it took. It took four years. It wasn't instant. It wasn't overnight. And once the hate was gone, I couldn't really justify what I was doing anymore. Now this God is not someone that's trying to, to, to run my life and tell me what to do because he hates me and wants to send me to hell. Now I'm starting to finally realize that like, the people that I was raised around maybe aren't what all Christians are like. And I'm starting to use phrases like, if I was a Christian, this is the kind of Christian I'd want to be. Ever now and then I'd, I'd even start praying. The very final straw came in, in September of 2006. And I was sitting in Playboy's offices in Sacramento, California, and they offered to give me another 4,000 a day on top of what I'm already making. So I, I was like extremely happy when I left their office. And I'm driving up the interstate and I started praying to God. And this is the most ridiculous thing looking back now, but I was like, you know, God, it doesn't seem to matter what I do, you want to bless me. <laughs> it was like I was thanking God for my new porn contract. And uh, that was the wrong thing to do. As crazy as it sounds, I'm just telling you what happened. Right after I prayed that prayer, I felt electricity go through my body and it knocked out my breath. It was like, <sighs> like I'd been shocked. And 
hands were shaking and I pulled my car over to the side of the road and I was like, wow. It didn't feel like God was, was, was punishing me. It felt like he was saying, you know, you've been asking me to prove myself to you. I just did. I have a lot more for you than this. What are you gonna do with this? And I had to make a decision. And I just felt God touch me. I knew it. And I didn't want to produce porn anymore. I started praying again to God. And I says, you know, I, I think that I know what you want. <laughs> I think you want me to trust you and give you my life. And I just asked him to take control of my life. I knew, you know, how to pray and ask God in and ask him to take control. And so I did. I didn't need someone to walk me through it because I'd heard my dad give the same sinner's prayer forever. <sighs> there was just peace. The biblical word for this is surrender. It's when you finally say to God, I'm giving up control. And you get out of the driver's seat and you let him be in charge. How much longer will you hold on to the steering wheel with a white-knuckled grip? All of us are called to make a choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. And my prayer is that no matter what it costs and no matter where it leads, you will surrender control over to God. That you will personally declare the words of Joshua and you will say, as for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. Since being out, it definitely hasn't been easy. I knew I was going to lose everything I owned. The house was foreclosed on. Cars went away. The boat was repossessed. But the peace was just amazing. And I would feel God every day in ways that I'd never had experienced before. He finally, I started seeing him as a God that loves and doesn't hate. And I, had, I found a great local pastor who really took me under his wing. I would have these times where I'd cry so hard that I'd even, you know, vomit and finally fall asleep because I was so exhausted. And then wake up a few hours later and the process would start again. But it was kind of like porn detox and I was at peace the whole time. And I started reading through my Bible again. You could see love in every chapter. I love the Bible. It's an absolutely amazing book. It changed my life. For anyone struggling with this issue, it, it applies to you too. There is absolutely nothing that you could do that, that would change the fact that He loves you and He wants to pick you up every time you fall. But you gotta choose to turn away. Pornography might not be your struggle, but this applies to anything. You gotta choose to make that decision and walk away from it. And it's absolutely amazing to see what is capable of doing in people's lives. He is there to say that it doesn't matter what you've done. I paid a really high price to bring you back to me. And really all you have to do is accept my payment. You just say thank you. You accept it and you keep on going. And remember that there's nothing that you could ever do that would make him love you any less. Just nothing. Anything stand out to you in the video? Anybody here ever have 
especially in your youth, have that uh, feeling that God is the cosmic policeman that's watching what you do and he's ready to throw you into hell as soon as you slip up? Anybody ever felt that way? Yep. I'm glad I'm not the only one. I was reared that God could save me today. Tomorrow, I could walk down the street, look across, and there was a lady over there. I sinned, and I'm, I'm in hell again. Yep. That was the plan. Kind of makes you a little neurotic, doesn't it? <laughs> I think my, the turning point in my life, I think, was when I became a father myself. And then you see in the scripture, more, I think it stands out more than what God is depicting himself as a father. And, and I know that myself being an imperfect father, I still wanted to give good things to my kids. And I know that God, being the perfect father, wants to give us the perfect gift for us. And so... <clears throat> I think that the fir- probably the first step in overcoming a lot of this idolatry is understanding what God is truly like. Because if, if our God is the God that, that I grew up picturing, the, the policeman, oh, you messed up, too bad for you. Um, who wants to follow a God like that? I mean, would that be heaven to be with him for eternity? It really wouldn't but to be with our Father. So that, that was one thing in the video that kind of stood out to me. And the other one, um, I think Bill probably knows what this one is, the, the kid worship thing where, that, where it talked about depression is on such a, an epidemic because the more it's about me, the more depressed I become. And we think about, I mean, in kids' sports, I mean, it's all about kid worship at that point. I mean, you're, you make the tunnel and the kids run through it and you're cheering and it's all about them. Everybody wins a trophy and it's all about them. And I think that's why we're seeing such a, a huge increase in depression these days. I've heard Baruch say this quite a bit and probably many of you have too, that the foundation of reality is that there's one God and that you are not Him. And once we've established that, then we have to make a choice. Because there is the Lord God, the sovereign of all creation, and then there's me, the imposter to the throne, who am I going to serve? Kind of sounds silly when you put it in those terms, but yet so often I serve myself. The very first temptation was the the serpent came to Eve and said, look at this fruit, doesn't that look good? What What was the big pull of that? You'll be like God. So that's worshiping ourselves. I mean, when she looked at it, she thought, what's well, good for food? But that wasn't the draw to it. It was, 
It'll make you wise. You'll be like God. So what are some of the symptoms that show up when I sit on the throne of my own heart? Arrogance. Anybody see how that could be a a symptom of uh, self-worship? I'm always right. My way is best. Um, What about insecurity? Uh, That might be one that if I'm God, I can't fail. I'd be terrified of even trying something that I might have a, a remote possibility of failing at because God doesn't fail. Uh, defensiveness, I think, would be another uh, characteristic. Um, any criticism that I would uh, receive, uh, it can't be justified because who are you to criticize God, right? And then I think, last of all, loneliness, because we we don't have any equals. There's nobody we can hang out with because I'm God. The God of me is the most relentless idol of all. When we talk about gods at war, it's really me versus God. It's the flesh versus the spirit and all the other gods we've talked about. I mean, the the temple of pleasure, we've talked about food and sex and entertainment and we talked about uh, the temple of power. We talked about uh, success, achievement, and money. And then... Uh, the temple of love we've talked about uh, family and um, and now we're talking about me and all of these are really about me because it's it's about what brings me pleasure it's about what brings me uh, power and significance and it's taking God off the throne and putting me in his place In Jeremiah, the second chapter, the analogy it uses there is is of broken cisterns. And God is bringing charges against his people for rejecting him and for turning to idols. And in the 13th verse, he says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So what is the difference between springs and cisterns? Cisterns don't. Okay. So springs are moving water, living water. Uh, cisterns are stagnant water. Uh, typically cisterns were made to collect rainwater in, the, in Palestine at the time that Jeremiah was writing, uh, rains were infrequent, uh, at least for half the year. And what rain they did get, uh, they would collect it in cisterns. And archaeologists have found many, many cisterns uh, throughout Palestine. And it's just a way to collect water. And, and the, the illustration that's used is broken cisterns. And so the, basically you dig a pit or carve it out somewhere, you line it with, with brick and mort- put mortar in it to hold water. So if you've got a broken cistern, what do you have? <laughs> you have a leak. You don't have water. <laughs> so 
So a broken cistern would not provide water and probably what little water it would provide would be stagnant water. And so when you think of that analogy that they use, that Jeremiah uses, that you would, who would choose as their water source a cistern when you had a spring right there beside it? And that's the, that's the analogy he uses. Why would you choose to follow an idol or follow yourself when the living God is a spring? So instead of looking to God as a source of comfort, if we're looking for the living water, that's where we're at. We're looking to God for that. If we're turning to our cisterns, we might turn to food or mindless entertainment. Instead of looking to God as our source of significance, we might turn to our careers or accomplishments. Instead of looking to God as our security, we might look to our money and investments. Instead of looking to God as our source of joy, we look to our spouse or our children. Instead of looking to God as our source of hope, we might look to politicians or legislation. Instead of looking to God as our source of truth, we might look to popular opinion or academic consensus. And none of these things are inherently bad, except maybe the politicians. (laughs) But have they become broken cisterns to us? When we have the source of living water available to us, are we going to turn to the broken cisterns? Luke 9, verse 23, I'd like to read that, uh, 23 through 25. And I think this, this kind of boils down to what, what our struggle is. He said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit their very self? So when we look at following self as the God, this verse is impossible to to follow. Because how often do I deny myself? Once a year? Is it daily? Tim. Alan, one of the things that he said in that video was hit me right between the eyes. He was talking about his wife. He said, it's not that I didn't love her. I just love myself a lot. Uh, You know, it got me thinking, well, that's exactly the whole thing with God, right? It's not that I don't love God. I just love myself a lot. Right. Right. Uh, and, and that's, you know, when we talk about the God of me, which, you know, any of these things we've been talking about is, as you said, you know, that, that's really what it, what it comes down to, is I don't, I don't trust God to take care of stuff or, you know, whatever God wants to give me is clearly not as good as what I can take care of myself. Okay. So, so but the, the gist of what Tim is saying there is that he said in the video, I love my wife, but I love me 
more. And what, what is it that we love me more about when it comes to God? Um, let me ask this question. Hopefully we can get some discussion on it. God is the sovereign of this universe. And he is worthy of all of my praise, adoration, anything that I can come up with to adore him, he is worthy. Anybody disagree with that? So why, why are you a Christian? Is it, to, is it so that you won't go to hell? Is it so you can go to heaven? Okay. If, if, that, if that is our reason, who am I worshiping? Am I worshiping me because I want to be in the good place and not the bad place, right? We worship God because he deserves it, not because I want to stay out of hell, right? And so, so I would challenge us to think about that in our own lives is... God is worthy of all that we have and all that we can give him. And, and even in Scripture, it says, even when we've done everything, we're still just unworthy servants. So God is worthy, and he's worth following. And so if my, if my following him, if my loving him is to stay out of hell or to go to heaven or whatever it is, that's a selfish reason. Because I'm not, I'm not worshiping God because he's worthy. I'm worshiping God because I'm afraid of what will happen if I don't. Now, staying out of hell is a good thing to do, but that shouldn't be my motivation to do it. Does that make sense? Anybody have any insight into that? Anybody want to argue? <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I don't want to go into the bad part. Right. It just takes time to get past that me and living for him. Okay. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> okay, Jeff. Uh, I just, kind of a metaphor is, is I remember as a child that I wanted to, I wanted to be like my, my dad. And, and I try to mimic what he was doing. And, and I'd, I'd show him stuff that I'd made like he was making, of course, it wasn't any good. And, and just so I could get his praise. But as I got older, as a teenager, I thought I could do it better. And uh, as I even got older, I looked in the mirror one day and I saw my dad. So, <laughs> Uh, And I think our our lives are much the same way with God as we go through our lives. Uh, As a child, I think we have a better appreciation of who God is. But somewhere along the line, we become more dependent upon ourselves than God. But I think also at some point in our our lives, if, if we seek God with all our hearts, our souls, and our minds, we'll look in the mirror one day and, and we'll see that we're like God. Good. 
A lot of what you just said will change me from a policeman God to that someone asks, why are you a Christian? And most people say, because I want to go to heaven. No, we're a Christian because we're thankful for all that he's done for us. We're already going to heaven, and we live our lives in Thanksgiving. And when you teach young kids and try to teach my kids at home, we're like, why do you do the dishes? Why do you fold your clothes? Why do you do what we say? Hopefully not because you want to go to Cane's and eat, or you want to or you want to stay up late. You do it because you love our family and you're thankful for what you have, and that's why you help and live your not because you want something, which they still do that much. Yeah, but I think that's good. I mean, it takes the focus off of me and puts it on to God, or puts it on to to wherever we want it. But I mean, in this case, it's we're, we're wanting to follow God and serve Him only. And so if we can put the focus on Him and not on me, and what, what does my following God do for me, or what does my going to church do for me, it's what, it's what, am I, what has God done for me that I'm thankful for, and I'm showing Him my gratitude for the love that's he, that he's shown me. Alan, it's not a bad starting place, though, when you're in your faith, to because the Bible says you need to come to him believing that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Then you see God having the children of Israel saying, choose what you want to do. Choose death by following this or choose life by following me. So there is a part of that woven in the scripture of a starting place of knowing who God is, is that we want to please him and go and, and um, be with him and believe that he is God. And so right. it just can't be where it stays. Right. Yeah, and, and when I look back over my life, some of the places I've been with God, it's like, I can't believe that's where I was at. But, that, but sometimes we have to walk these paths to get to where we are today. And like I said, I'm, growing up you think, think of God as he's the worst parent ever because he, he's the killjoy, doesn't let you do anything fun, all that. But as you get older you realize he's got your best interests at heart. And he's trying to protect you from things that would destroy you. And we're not smart enough to to see that many times but our faith has to grow I think or our relationship has to grow to the point where we're worshiping God for God's sake not for my own does that make sense it's so easy to condemn ourselves because that's what Satan wants to do right that's not what God wants either because it is about ourselves again Right. So we don't want to walk condemned either when we know faith is a growing thing. Right. So. And, and that's why I think once we understand who God is, then those, those feelings kind of go away because he is, he's a loving father. And even if we didn't have good fathers here, we can still see the good things that God does. And if we did have a good father here, that just kind of reinforces uh, who God really is. And, and the Bible talks enough about God that he says, 
that you're not going to, if your son wants a bread, you're not going to give him a stone. Or if he wants a fish, you're not going to give him a snake. So, so you, being imperfect, know how to give, give good gifts to your children. How much more will God give good gifts to those that follow him, that are his children? And so, so I think that's, once we understand who God is, then those um, childish ways, I guess, of looking at God as a policeman or something like that, those kind of go away because we see God as a father that takes care of us. Um, childish ways, though, in some respects, were taught to us. I mean, that's the message that we got at church. Right. Was, you got to do this because if you don't, God's going to punish you. And, uh, and I think you have to get past that, too. It was not relationship, it was total work. Yeah, well, yeah, and a lot of that is church leaders that, that want to control people. That's the kind of message that they give because um, if, if the message is grace and freedom, then it's hard to control people in that situation. But if that's the goal of the, of the leaders or whoever, then that's, that's a poor way to be a Christian. Because grace and freedom is where God is at, and he's the one that will give us um, the victory at the end. It's not the church leaders. I think you use the word sovereign. Uh-huh. God is sovereign. You know, sin is not our problem. It's God's fix. He takes care of that. So, he wants to fix it. He's not after us. He's for us. Who wants to? We can't solve the problem of sin. He does that. Yep. I to defend. I so want to. I wanted to repeat what Keith said. I think it's worth hearing. Um, he's saying that God is sovereign, and that sin is not our problem. It's God's problem. God is fixing the sin problem because we can't, and that's why we have to rely on Him. I think we, everyone will struggle with who God is. And a lot of times when we say, why is this happening? We're not really saying, why is this happening? We're saying, who are you, God, in this? And when you said that the people, that a lot of the leaders in some of our past were wanted to control us, I, I don't, I think they had a poor understanding of grace. And they were afraid, they really cared and wanted to make sure that we didn't go to hell, and they felt, because they didn't understand grace, they weren't necessarily, not all of them anyway, weren't necessarily trying to be authoritative and control us. I think they were trying to make sure we went to heaven too. So I think it's learning, but grace is not something you step out of. And they didn't have an understanding. A lot of them still don't have an understanding of that, but it's not necessarily because everyone needs to be controlling. I think it can't come out of love. Okay, so that the, so. I was 35 years old before I met her. Grace. That's what was missing in my early life. I just never did have, no one ever helped me understand who she was. Right. Yeah, grace, grace is something that, has not been a stalwart of Churches of Christ doctrine for a long time. And I, 
I'm thankful that at least at this one, I feel like grace is presented um, as it is. I mean, as God's gift to us. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I mean, it was I was an adult certainly before I could understand what grace was even trying to be about. In John 4, we uh, see a passage about um, where Jesus goes through Samaria and he stops at the well at Sychar and he's waiting. He knows this woman's coming. He's waiting for her to show up. And getting back to our our water analogy, um, I'll start reading in verse 10 of John 4. It says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from him himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come here to keep drawing water. How do you explain that to one who has no concept of what the difference in water and water is? I faced that this morning. Well, I guess, I guess I would ask, what are you thirsty for? I mean, are, um, is your life full of stress and you're looking for peace? Are you thirsty for that peace? Where's that going to come from? Are you bored and thirsty for purpose? For acceptance? For validation? What, I mean, what... Where is our deepest thirst lie? I mean, if it's just a cool drink of water to slake a physical thirst, I think that gives us a, an understanding of what Jesus gives us. If we are looking for validation, if we're looking for significance, that drink of Christ that, that, gives, that gives me significance. Because I don't have to be a millionaire to be significant. I don't have to drive a Porsche to be significant because Jesus gives me that significance. So I think if we can look for that drink of water, that that will um, slake our thirst. And Jesus does invite us. He says, drink from me and you will never thirst again. In the video, he said about the peace that came over him that almost struck him. And I think that's the idea that uh, he had, that he received that grace. And even everything going on around him, he lost his house and boat and cars and everything. Essentially, he found out when he turned and took all those things that he was worshiping, gave it over gave his life to Christ, that peace came to him. And I think, 
I, I search for that peace all the time. And I'm still not there. Uh, we, I think we're all sort of searching for that peace and struggle. But yet once we uh, put Jesus where he belongs as our God and not money or cars or homes, uh, we realize that that peace will come to us. And that's a great feeling. I could, you could see almost the, the smile on his face when he talked about that, right. that peace. Well, when you look at, if our peace is try, coming from anywhere but God, it can easily go away. So, I didn't finish because we do have a job. And our job is to quit sinning. But those of us who are in Christ don't have to fear that we have eternity with, with God. He's fixed it. But we need to stop sinning. Yep. Don't continue in sin that grace may abound. Because we've we've died to that lifestyle. And I think that's the I think that's the key that I'll leave leave us with here is that the Bible encourages us, commands us to die to ourselves. Because until we do that, we cannot be an effective disciple of Jesus. Because we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, and then we get off the altar and we do what we want to do. And that's not how sacrifices work. So I thank you all for being here uh, for this series. Um, if anybody, like I said, has a desire to teach next week, I would welcome that. Um, but this does wrap up this series, God's at War. I hope it's been a challenge for you, made you think a little bit, um, help us see that everything that we do Maybe neither right nor wrong, but it's our motivation for why we do it. And let's, let's examine our hearts and let's worship the Lord God only because He deserves all of our praise. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.